Isn't it frustrating when uh, you're trying to communicate something and the person that you're communicating with doesn't seem to see or hear or understand what you're trying to say to them? I remember, and uh, maybe you remember in your teenage years, that your parents never understood that the curfew they placed on you was unreasonable and it seriously hampered your social life. And the more you spoke about it, the more that you wanted them to understand, they just didn't understand. And every time I think of this concept of miscommunication, it reminds me of a video that I watched many years ago, and it's probably still around, um, of this German uh, coast guard, and he was sitting there, and he was listening to all the messages come in, and so from this English vessel comes this message, Mayday, Mayday, we are sinking, we need help, Mayday. And the German lifeguard, or not the this coast guard, sits there, and he adjusts his little knobs over there, and then he goes and he responds by saying, uh, what are you thinking about? <laughs> and I think, man, that's a misunderstanding that's going to cause a huge amount of problems. And, but I was reading actually this week about uh, Michelangelo, of all things. I don't know why, but it, it came up. And um, you'll see a picture here of, of Moses. This is a sculpture of Michelangelo, and there's Moses. Uh, but you'll notice there's something weird about Moses that he's got horns in his head. And so, in fact, this was inspired by the story of Moses coming down uh, the mountain with the, with the Ten Commandments, those tablets that he's leaning on there. And Michelangelo read the story, and in his inspiration, that's, that's the sculpture that he, that he created. But why the horns? You may ask yourself. I ask myself the question, what the heck has the horns got to do with Moses? Well, this is the true story. When he read the story in the Vulgate, it's, it's a particular version of the Bible, the word for glow and the word for horns is exactly the same word. It just depends where the dots are on top of the word. And so we understand that the translation of what happened there is that it was the glow, the glory of God that was upon Moses. But Michelangelo read it that it was the horns of God. And so he created that as his sculpture. So that's a bit of a misunderstanding. But it is frustrating. When people don't hear you, when there's a misunderstanding, when people don't see what you're trying to tell them, they can't hear what you're trying to tell them. And every time I look at this story about Palm Sunday, I get the sense that from this story, and by the way, we are in Palm Sunday. This is why we had the palms outside, and, and we, we're going to be preaching about this today. But when you look at the story, and this whole week as I was reading the story, I kept on getting the sense that these people, these people in Matthew 21, which we're going to read about, did not understand. They did not see. They did not hear what God was telling them in that moment. And I think today it's the same thing. I really believe that many people still today cannot hear cannot understand and could not see what God is trying to tell them and communicate to them. So let's go to this portion of Scripture and let's read the story and let's unpack it a little bit. So Matthew 21 from verse 1 to 11 is we'll read. In fact, this story is in every, all four of the Gospels. I'd, I'd suggest this week read the story in all four of those Gospels and you'll get a good sense of, of what it's about. But in Matthew chapter 21 from verse 1, he says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, it, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their, uh, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You see what's significant about this story is that up until this point, Jesus did not declare himself as the Messiah. You might find that quite strange. But when you study theology, they have a, a concept called the messianic secret, and that was what this means. It means why did Jesus, up until this point, not want him declare himself as the Messiah? People said to him, you the Son of God. People said to him, you, are you the King? Are you the Messiah? And most of the time when they said that, his response was to quieten them down. But here we get to Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus makes a statement. And where he was quiet, it was at this moment in time that he, he declares to the world, I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. I am the King that you've been waiting for. You see, the, what happened in the story is that about a few weeks before Palm Sunday, before the triumphant entry, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember that story? It was just a couple of weeks before the Passover. And so there was this great excitement in Bethany because of what Jesus had done. So they left Bethany and they went into Samaria and back into Galilee. And then they, while they were there, they decided they were going to go back to Jerusalem because they wanted to go to the Passover. And on their way back to Jerusalem, Jesus healed 10 lepers, if you remember that story. And then they decided that they weren't going to stay in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, the Passover was a feast for six days. It was a whole week. They decided that for that week, they weren't going to actually live in Jerusalem. They were going to go and live in Bethany and travel into Jerusalem every single day. And so Jesus gets to Bethany. And we can see from the different stories in the gospel that there was already excitement because this was the man that raised Lazarus from the dead. And he's back and he's in town. And so the people who started to stir one another up. And on, on Palm Sunday, Jesus called to his disciples. He says to them, go and get a donkey and, a, and, the, and the cult of a donkey. Bring them to me. And he goes and he sits on this donkey and he moves towards Jerusalem. And to understand what was happening, you need to understand that there was already a crowd, a crowd around him because he was the man that raised Lazarus from the dead. And so when you read the story, you start to realize that as Jesus was going towards Jerusalem, there was a crowd before him, a crowd around him, a crowd in front of him, already starting to declare, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. And as this commotion started to, to happen, people in Jerusalem started to hear this. They heard that Jesus was coming, and they left Jerusalem and met him on the way. And so this crowd descends to Jerusalem. We hear from the story that they did some things. They put palm branches down. They put their cloaks down. 
And yet Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And I want to tell you that this was a significant moment in the history of mankind. Because this is the moment where Jesus declares himself the Messiah. And certain things happen. I want to show you what happened. Because the people must have understood, if they understood their, their Bibles of the time, the Torah and the prophets, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying to them. And this is what Jesus was saying to them. He came in on a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 says that rejoice for Jerusalem. Your king is coming in on a donkey. And so those who understood the word of God would have discerned this and would have seen that here comes our king on a donkey. The statement of, of, of Jesus Christ that I and that king. The second statement that he made to declare himself as the Messiah was the, the response of the people. Remember, the people were now putting these branches down. This morning I said trees down. I think that would have been quite uncomfortable. Eh? I don't go over all these trees. But these branches down and these cloaks down. And they're significant because palm branches. You know what it meant when you lay a palm branch in front of a king? It meant that you are ushering in the victorious king. It meant that the victory has been won. It meant that the war was over. Our king is coming back triumphantly. Now, I don't have time to look at that, but just think of what Christ did for us. Man, we put palm branches down because he's the king that saved us. He's the one who gave us death over victory. Doesn't the Bible say, oh, death, where's your sting now? Because it's done, Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. It's over. So we should be today putting our palm branches down and saying, our victorious king, come. Because it's over. The war is won. But the second thing they did was they put their cloaks down. And we read in the, in the Old Testament, two kings, a story about a king, Jehu. And the prophet came to him and anointed him as king. And his friends asked him, they say, what happened? And so he, he retells the story, and he says, So Jehu told them, he said to me, the prophet, This is what the Lord says, I have anointed you to be king over Israel. Now listen to how the people respond. And then they quickly spread their cloaks on the bare steps and blew the ram's home, shouting, Jehu is king. And so as these people lay these cloaks down, they were symbolizing, and as they were singing Hosanna, they were declaring that Jesus Christ is their king. The third thing that was significant about this time is the fulfillment of, of Passover. Remember that Passover, as I said to you, was a whole week. But Passover and the timing of the, the way Jesus did this is so significant. Because Passover stems from Exodus, when the nation of Israel were under, under the captivity of the Egyptians. And God sent the ten plagues. And the last plague, remember what happened the last plague? It was the death of the firstborn sons. But all, God said to the Israelites, listen here, all I want you to do is slaughter a lamb. Take the blood of that lamb. Put it on your door frames. When the angel of death comes to your home and they see the blood on the door frame, they will pass over you and you'll be saved. Another thing to just think about what that meant about Jesus Christ. Man, when, he's co when you're covered in his blood, death will pass over you and you'll have eternal life. And so the centerpiece of Passover was the lamb. And you know that in, in this time, on Passover every year, Passover started on the 10th of Nisan. Nisan is the month, not the car. The month. In the Hebrew calendar. I mean the Jewish calendar. And on the 10th, the people would go and select their lamb. 
the one that they were going to slaughter. I want to ask you the question, what day do you think Jesus came into Jerusalem? On the 10th of Nisan. Because as the people were selecting their lamb, God had selected his lamb to pay for the sins of the world. And something strange happened. Once you selected your lamb, you would bring him into your home for four days. I don't know what that's all about. That's just weird. But they would stay in your home for four days, and on the 14th of Nisan, you would slaughter that lamb at 9 o'clock in the morning. I want you to think. I know you're going to answer the correct answer. What do you think happened on the 14th of Nisan at 9 o'clock in the morning at this Passover? Jesus was crucified on the cross. And then the high priest, and they would wait six hours to make sure that the lamb was dead. And when the sixth hour was over, they would declare that the lamb is dead. Six hours later, on the cross, at, nine, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus did this. He said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. And so you see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. Everything the Passover symbolized, everything that the Passover meant, Jesus was that. John tells us in, in John chapter 1 or 2, he says, Behold, as he, just before he baptizes Jesus, he says, Behold, here comes the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so as we look at these three events, it sounds hectic, eh? Daniel? I don't know. But if you look at these three events, as you look at this, what Jesus was saying to them by coming in on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9, they would have understood that. If you look at what they were declaring, that Jesus was their king. And if you look at this fulfillment of the Passover to its T, surely those people would have in that moment said, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. This is the Son of God. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. But they didn't. They couldn't hear what God was saying. They couldn't see what God was doing. Because four days later, those very same people stood in a, in a crowd and started to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Let Barabbas go. Crucify Christ. And I look at the story, and I think, Lord, how did they miss this? How much louder should you declare that you are the Son of God? How much louder should you declare that you're the Messiah, that you're the King? And people missed it. How could they miss it? How could they four days later be standing there and saying, crucify Him, crucify Him? And so as I was wondering about that question, two things came to my mind about the story. The first one is, when you look at the back end of of the story you'll see in verse 10. It says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, there were a bunch of people in Jerusalem that didn't know about Jesus. They never saw his miracles. They never heard his teachings. And so they see this commotion. And they ask those around them, who is this? The people around them respond, well, this is a prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth. I would have thought in that moment 
The answer would have been, this is the Son of God, our Messiah that we were waiting for. But they didn't say that. They said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth. And they were misled. Because what was communicated to them is that he's just another prophet. He's not the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's just another prophet. He's prophet Jesus from Nazareth. And I misunderstood everything that Christ had just done. And I look at the story and I think to myself, isn't it sad that we sit 2,000 years later and we have the same problem in this world that we live in? You know, when people encounter this reality of Jesus Christ, whether it's through a sermon or whether it's through reading or whether it's a friend, whichever way you, you get uh, encountered by this reality that there's a person called Jesus Christ, often when we turn to the crowd, this world, and we ask this question, who is he? The answer we often would get back is he's just another way to God. He's like Muhammad. He's like the gods of, 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 of the Hindus. He's like New Age. He's just a road to God. Another prophet. You know that 80% of people that don't, are non-religious believe that all roads lead to God. I was reading a, a, a concerning statistic the other day about, uh, from Barna to say that under 35s in the church, 45% of people under the age of 35 in the church still believe that Christ is not the only way to God. And so as we cry out in this world, who is Jesus? Often the answer we get is he's just another God. But Jesus answered this. John chapter 12, he writes, he says this. I am the truth, the way and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Every time I think of that verse, I think of my uncle, he worked at the SABC, and he used to tell me about some of the meetings they had about religious content, and he would say that often they would sit in this, this room, and there would be this argument that all religions are the same, and they all lead to God, and he said he'd often have to sit down and ask his colleagues from other religions, does your God have a son? And they would be so totally disgusted by him, because how could they say that about their God? And he'd say, but, but mine does. And say, if yours doesn't and mine does, we don't serve the same God. And I want to say to you today, if you're confused, and you believe that all roads lead to God, I want to say to you that you today need to hear what Jesus is saying to you. You need to hear what he's declaring to you, that he's the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. That he's the land that takes away the sins of the world. That he is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords and he is the only path to make right with God. There's no other way but through him. The second reason I think people missed what Jesus was saying was because as they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David in verse 9, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You get the sense that yes, they probably in that moment They were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah. That in that moment, they were probably going, yes, this could be our king. But you see, their expectation of the king was different. We know so from history and from all all the writings around that time that the nation of Israel wanted the king. 
They wanted the Messiah. They didn't want the Messiah for salvation eternally. Maybe it was there somewhere. But what they wanted was a king that was going to set them free from Roman oppression. What they wanted was a king that will reestablish the nation of Israel like David did. What they were wanting was a king that would give them financial freedom and prosperity. That's what they were looking for. So when they were singing, Hosanna, son of David, that's what they were saying, come and save us. Hosanna means save us, save me now. And as they're declaring, save me now, save me now, they're not thinking about eternal life. They're thinking about what they want, what their king must do for them. And I think as the days transpired, I don't know what they were wanting to happen. I don't know if they were hoping that, that as Jesus was there for the week that he was going to do something, maybe he was going to fry, send you know, fire from heaven and every Roman would be fried. And this morning I thought it would be, we can then start a chain called Kentucky Fried Romans. How God was going to sort this out, they didn't know. But maybe this was the time. And I think as the days passed, and as Jesus did nothing, and he did nothing about the Romans. In fact, he spoke more about them in the temple. I think by the fourth day, they'd rejected him because he didn't fulfill the expectation. He wasn't the king that they wanted. And so it was easy for them to say, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. Now look at that, and I think of us today, and I think, you know what? Isn't it true that sometimes we just like that? You know, sometimes we move towards Christ and we quickly want to declare him as our king, which is right and which is good. <clears throat> but many times we do that because we want him to do something for me. I want him to fix my marriage. I want him to fix my financial problem. I need breakthrough. I want him to fix my health. I want him to do something for me. And sometimes God doesn't do that. And as time passes, I've seen this many times as a pastor, people start to drift away from the king because he doesn't fulfill their expectation. Because what he's promised you and me was eternal matters, not temporal matters. It's just by God's grace that I think that, he, that, that he's so good to us and answers our prayers and gives us breakthroughs, and we have miracles and all those kind of things. But Jesus died so we could have eternal life. And they missed this. And you may say to me, Nick, but I don't reject God when he doesn't, <laughs> you know, I can associate with that, but I don't reject God. And I know that. I don't do that either, but I do find that I do something which is very similar. That when God doesn't perform as the king that I want, let me give you an example. Maybe you're praying to, for a marriage partner, and you've been praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and God's not answering, and nothing's happening, and then you very quickly decide, Lord, I'm going to take the reins back, and I'm going to be king now again, and I'm going to decide what I'm going to do about this thing, because I'm not going to let you be king over this anymore, because I'm going to do it my way. Or maybe we've been waiting for financial breakthrough and it's not coming and it's not coming and then all of a sudden, guess what happens? We take the reins back. We say, thank you, Lord, but your moment as king is gone because now you haven't, ex you haven't delivered on my expectations and so I take the reins back and I'm going to do it my way now. 
Maybe you're there today. Maybe at home you're there today. And it resonates with you. I want to say there's a simple answer. Jesus wants to be your king. Jesus wants to be your king. He wants to be your savior. He is your Lord. And he wants the reins of your life. As I was working through this, I found these two things. And I thought, Lord, what actually, what response do you want from us as you make this statement? As you make the statement that you are our Messiah, that you are the King of kings and the land that takes away the sins of the world, what is it that you're looking from me? What is it that you want me to share with you? And I think that in the story, it doesn't answer that question, but the Bible answers the question. And you know it, and I know it at home, you know it. What God wants from you is He wants you. He wants you to follow Him. Listen to what the Bible tells us here. Let me find it here. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And so as Jesus declares that He's the King, He wants to be the one that leads, and He wants you and me to be the one that follows. Paul writes it like this. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's a handing over of the reins. It's not no longer about me, Lord. It's about you. That's what it means to make him your king. There's two stories that happened during this week because Jesus came into the triumphant entry and then he went home and then he came back into Jerusalem during the week and two things happened. As I was praying, I was saying, Lord, what is it that you want us to do? These two stories stood out. The first one was the cleaning or the clearing of the temple. In Matthew 21, 12 to 13, it says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. You see what was happening is because all these pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem. They were coming to the temple courts because at the temple courts they were selling all the, the lambs and the doves because they weren't going to bring them with them from Galilee. You're not going to walk with your lamb all the way from Galilee. You're going to come to the, to the temple. But there was also sneaky things happening which I haven't got time to explain to you. But you know what? They had Roman coins with, the, with, with Caesar's um, face on them and, and the temple didn't accept that. So you'd have to go to the temple and first change your coins to, to the coins that they accepted. And that's where they made some money because they charged a little bit extra. And so when you got your coins and you could go and you can go buy your lamb or buy your pigeons or buy your doves. And Jesus walks into the temple and he sees this. And he sees this busyness and he sees this distraction. And I think he did it with far more, more force and energy. But, but simply all he was doing was he was saying to the people, Remove all the busyness and the distractions from my temple and bring it back to its purpose. Its purpose is to be a place of worship, a place of prayer. And as I read through that, I realized that Jesus, at one point in his life, said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple in three days I'll rise it up. He was referring to himself. We see that Paul in 1 Corinthians writes this, he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And God's Spirit dwells in you. And this is what I felt God was saying. 
that if you and I want to make him the king of our lives, what we must deal with is our temples. We need to clean out our temples. We need to clean out all the stuff that keeps us so distracted and all the busyness and all the nonsense out. And we need to get back to our purpose, and that is to worship God. Make him your everything. Clean your temple. The second thing that stood out for me was the story about the coins. They were trying to, to distract, well, actually trap Jesus, and they brought him a coin, and obviously the coin had Caesar on it. And they were saying to him, should we pay taxes? Showing Jesus this coin. I'm not going to tell you what the whole story was about because I don't have the time. But Jesus takes this coin, and he asks him a question. He shows him this, this imprint of Caesar, and he says to him, who does this belong to? No, it's Caesar's. Okay. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then he says something interesting. But give to God what belongs to God. Let me ask you this question today. In whose image are you created? God's image. Who do you belong to? God. So give to God what is God's. Your life is his. And so as he declares this over your life and my life tonight, that I am your king, what he's looking for is for us to get back to our purpose of worshiping him and giving ourselves back to him. You may say to me, Nick, why is this important? I think eternally it's important because salvation is one of the rewards. But there's something interesting about the story. Is that Jesus rides in on a donkey. And a king that came into a city on a donkey meant one thing. That it's a king that comes to bring peace. And it's a king that comes in peace. You see, when a king came on a horse, a stallion, it meant that he was coming for war. But a king on a donkey meant that he was coming for peace. I think God wants to be your king because he wants to give you peace. He wants to give you peace in your todays, in everything that you're going through. But he also wants to give you peace about your tomorrow, everything you worry about. But more importantly, he wants to give you peace about eternal life. And so you and I have been chosen to serve a king. Say, Nick, what's my purpose in my life? Last week we said one of your purposes is that you should be holy. You've been chosen to be holy. He has another purpose for you, to serve a king. Colossians writes, and Paul writes in Colossians, and the first verse then in, in chapter 3, verse 12, actually, he says, then put on as God's chosen ones. Isn't that amazing? And he lists a whole bunch of things, and he gets to verse 15, and he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As God's chosen people, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You know how you'll do that? By making Jesus your king.